and welcome to Parkinson's Life, the award-winning podcast offering a voice to the global Parkinson's community. Each episode, we bring together people impacted by the condition for an honest conversation to share their stories, perspectives, and ideas on how to live well with Parkinson's. The more we've talked to people living with Parkinson's, the more we've learned about the impact of compulsive and impulsive behaviors. A potential side effect of dopamine agonists, that is, commonly prescribed Parkinson's medications which mimic dopamine in the brain, these might include compulsive gambling, shopping, or hypersexuality. In this episode, UK-based Vicki Dillon shares her own difficult experience of impulsive behaviors, which saw her personality change while her job, finances, reputation, and family life suffered. She is joined by Dr. Angelo Antonini, an academic neurologist from Italy who has around 30 years experience supporting people with Parkinson's. He shares his perspective on approaching dopamine agonists and treating his patients with care and empathy. In their conversation, Vicky and Angelo discuss the implications of dopamine agonists, how to address compulsive and impulsive behaviors, and why awareness about the issue is key to overcome stigma and help people with Parkinson's. Hi everyone, I'm Angelo Antonini. I'm an academic neurologist here at Padua University Hospital. And I started getting interested in Parkinson at the very beginning of a medical career. That was more than 30 years ago. So I've been working in several institutions in Zurich University. Then I spent a few years in New York. Then I got back to Italy, Milan, and then I'm now the director of this movement disorder unit here in Padua. Hi, I'm Vicky Dillon. I was diagnosed with Parkinson's in 2007, and that was after three years of symptoms. And I knew pretty early on that it had to be something neurological. So Vicky, how was your experience? When did you start uh, getting medications? At what age? And what did the medications change in your life? Well, I was 35 when I was eventually diagnosed and I wanted to be back to normal. I was so embarrassed and ashamed of having Parkinson's, if I'm honest. And, you know, it was an old person's disease. It didn't fit me or who, what I represented. And I was a nurse and very proud. And I just wanted to be able to take a pill to make it all go away. So pretty quickly, I was started on um, a dopamine agonist and titrated quite quickly up to maximum dose. And yeah, you suddenly get your life back and you're thinking, oh my God, this isn't so bad. I can cope with this. And then you, you, you're kind of in this false bubble because you, reality is just becomes distorted. You feel superhuman. I was never depressed apart from the initial time after my diagnosis. I was more or less swinging off the chandeliers half the time. Had boundless energy, didn't need to sleep, would do crazy things, um, no breaks, no awareness of danger, no control over money at all. Money meant nothing and I would just spend it like water. But crazy things as well, like we'd lived in this house for about three years, had spent the time doing it up before I was diagnosed. And then I started randomly painting things, really bright, vivid colours and then repainting them and repainting them just bizarre and baking endless cakes. I mean, it was just ridiculous, never sleeping and was exhausted. But the more exhausted I was, the more hyper I got. And 
pure good fun to be around, I think, because, you know, you're a party animal. You make people laugh. You, you know, you think, oh, well, I might have Parkinson's, but, you know, life isn't so bad. It's a lie. And it, my life came crushing down badly, it did. I think what you're saying is unfortunately quite similar to many other people. And I think the unfortunate part is that this is even, in my experience, more common in young patients, in people starting young. So Angelo, with your patients, do you find that a lot of them have the impulse side effects? And could you describe what they really are? Well, I think uh, discussing uh, uh, about impulse control disorders, uh, uh, it is a bit like talking about the effect of dopamine in our brain. Uh, dopamine is a neurotransmitter, uh, which uh, uh, when you expect to be rewarded for some activity, uh, some pleasurable event, uh, it peaks. So naturally, in people with Parkinson, uh, there is a loss of dopamine uh, neurons. And at the beginning, uh, one of the first symptoms uh, that people with Parkinson experience uh, is a lack of pleasure. So the inability to find pleasure in activities that you previously found to be interesting and attractive. So when we start replacing the dopamine through the medications, essentially we are reestablishing a relatively good mobility. But there is a problem with this that we learned after several years. In a normal condition, the brain is able to deal with this dopamine in a very accurate way. When we provide medications, this process is no longer relying on a normal feedback in the brain. It happens based on the amount of medication we prescribe. And quite frequently, the doctor targets primarily mobility as a sign of improvement. So we want to give back mobility to people who have been becoming slower and unable to walk properly and move properly, or they may have tremor. So we use this as an index of success in therapy. We learned over time that there may be a different sensitivity threshold for the behavioral aspects of dopamine. So it is different. If you target movement, you may have a very good result. But on the other hand, you may overstimulate the circuitry in the brain that is associated with reward, and people with Parkinson may start experiencing excessive drive to entertain and engage themselves in pleasurable activities. Many people with Parkinson started developing in the last 10, 20 years these behavioral problems. Another point, Vicky, I think it is important, and I would like to hear from you uh, what was your experience, uh, is uh, that at the beginning, we, you get prescribed medications because, in order to get better. Mm -hmm. And then you start experiencing things uh, which maybe are a bit over the edge compared with what you were used to do before. But these are actually pleasurable events. Now... People with Parkinson did not report this to us immediately because they said, well, look, I was used to be depressed and now I feel great. Imagine that during the day I feel fully awake and in the evening 
I need only four or five hours sleep, I wake up and I'm great. We thought initially, wow, this is meaning we have hit the target. But then after a few weeks or months or years, we started learning that this was associated with some dramatic activities going on in people's lives. Did you meet anyone else uh, who was in the same situation as you, Vicky? Oh, I've met so many. And because I did a documentary in 2011 entitled Sex, Lies and Parkinson's, and it was just about the side effects, and it was it was deemed scandalous at the time. It was ridiculous because what, what I was doing was just telling the world what might had happened to me and what I knew had happened to a lot of other people. But I was, um, I think a lot of patients didn't want their families and friends to know what they were getting up to and, you know, about debt and gambling and hypersexuality and wanted to hide it. And I very much was very innocent and naive, should I say. It was like a lamb to the slaughter when it came to the media. Far too honest. Interviewed on live telly this morning, which is a big British um, morning programme. You know, was was like slated by the some of the parky community for actually being honest about it and in the end it caused me so much grief that i ended up leaving my job as a nurse which devastated me now one thing that when we did uh, some the first studies on this uh, we realized that people who were experiencing this impulsive control uh, were actually quite often depressed and anxious because uh, I think that you develop that sense of guilt, that your life at some point uh, is just rolling the wrong direction and then you can stop the uh, the avalanche. Uh, I frequently say it starts as a snowball and then uh, all of a sudden is an avalanche and your life is ruined and then there is no way you can get back to normal life. And, and you had a normal life, Vicky, before Parkinson, before you started this. You were a nurse... Uh, you had a regular uh, life as many other people, and all of a sudden the medications uh, uh, changed you. So they boosted the aspects of yourself, which you were, you're not experienced uh, in dealing with. Did you get any enough support for this? I mean, uh, did you seek help? I did seek help. And actually in the documentary, you, there's a clip where I'm actually talking to my consultant and uh, he's asking me, and um he kind of like acknowledges he knew what was happening. He knew. And there was no services. There was nobody for me to talk to. My GP referred me to see a psychiatrist who just said, well, you're not mentally ill. Although I think I really was in some ways. Um, I, it was like a grieving thing. Like I said before, I hadn't accepted what had happened to me. And it, the, the agonists were just giving me a get out clause to bury my head and, and have fun. But really, it just was a nightmare. So yeah, I went to see a psychiatrist who didn't have any, you know, insight into Parkinson's. So just discharged me. And I was desperate. There was nobody apart from other patients. Yeah. And how did you spend your days? Because were you able to go to work? I quit work in about the year after the, the documentary. So about 2012. By that point, I'd racked up a lot of debt. And my children really had lost their mother for a few years. So I had terrible guilt. And I ended up moving out of the family home, feeling really bad, really guilty, 
worthless. It was horrible. It was the worst time of my life. But looking back, um, it makes you realise what a strong person you are. When you hit rock bottom, there's only one way to go and that's up. When did you address this problem with your doctor for the first time? Because uh, in my experience, uh, uh, particularly at the time you are mentioning uh, eight, ten years ago, People came when the uh, problems uh, uh, were so huge that it was very difficult for us to deal with. It was my partner who brought it up quite quickly because he used to come to my appointments with me. And I was just, I was pretty unaware, I think, at first. It was, he just said, you're acting crazy. And he said that I was a detention-seeking show-off. But things like buying a sports car, booking holidays to the Caribbean and cruises, you know, without discussing it with him. And he was like, this is like, she's changed personality. And from someone who never wanted to go out on a nighttime or a, week, or a weekend, I would spend it with my children. Suddenly, I was out partying and drinking heavily, smoking heavily. I was a respiratory nurse specialist and I was smoking my head off. I also was having some really bad cardiac problems and having um, going blue. And I kind of thought it was to do with the medication because I've never had any problems like that before. Eventually, after being told I was a hypochondriac, I was referred to a cardiologist who said your autonomic nervous system is affected by your medication. So, Angelo, can I ask you, how do you know whether your patients are having these side effects? Do they tell you or do you suspect? And if you do, what do you do? This is something that I had to learn myself. I was not aware of this 10, 20 years ago when we start using these drugs. So what I essentially do now, first, I'm very careful when we, I prescribe medications to young people. Because I know that if you're young and you have Parkinson, you are more vulnerable to this uh, dopamine replacement therapies. Two, I encourage people to come uh, with uh, a person they trust. Because at this point, I don't like to explain uh, the side effects, uh, you know, as if uh, the medication was uh, by default uh, giving you some harm. But I would like to interact uh, and build up a relationship. I frequently come in, uh, maybe I bring uh, uh, the psychologist with me or the nurse. So we start discussing uh, about replacing dopamine and what it does to your brain. You know, the things that I said uh, that I tried to explain at the beginning, I tend to repeat this uh, at the beginning to every patient without scaring uh, them, but uh, giving them uh, sufficient information that if something changes... Uh, in that behavior, both that they perceive or uh, the person they trust, uh, they live with, uh, they perceives this, uh, they should just let me know. It is a lot better now to intervene early rather than late. Of course, uh, occasionally, sometimes, uh, some people, I think they start uh, uh, getting a bit hooked up by the uh, pleasurable event, you know, because... Uh, you come off a period of depression, anxiety, because you have been diagnosed with Parkinson. I could imagine if I was 30 or 40 years of age and I get a diagnosis with Parkinson and I've been slow maybe with some tremor, I really would like to get rid of this and get over this. And then the medications work. Uh, so you would have the tendency to slightly over-treat yourself. 
you know, hitting the brakes is not easy because when you start feeling better, you want to get your life back. I don't know if this was the same with you, uh, Vicky, when you started. I never over gave myself more. I know lots of people did, but um, I think a lot of patients as well want to present themselves as the perfect patient to their neurologist. We have a this thing about that we want to please the doctor, that we're a good patient and and also, we don't want that drug taken off us. So I think people with Parkinson's can be manipulative at times and can tell porky pies and not are not always very honest because they're frightened that that, like you said, that drug that makes them feel good is going to be discontinued. But I think there's so many different avenues and different routes we can take and looking at treatment for Parkinson's. It certainly doesn't have to be all medication-based. What do you think about holistic and naturopathic roots? I think that anything that can make people better and feeling better, I think it's helpful. I, even if uh, uh, I'm uh, more experienced with, uh, say, traditional medicine uh, and medications, I have no objection, whatever you take uh, and which could make you feel better. It's just uh, that we need to be aware of the fact that the bulk of the dopamine replacement is done through the medications that we have. And you can complement this uh, maybe with something else, which would uh, improve uh, your gastrointestinal function, uh, will make the absorption better, uh, will minimize the risk of constipation. Uh, and so this is absolutely fine. But uh, you, unfortunately, so far... We do not have a, a pharmacological strategy that would not uh, require replacing the dopamine that is missing in the brain. You're listening to episode 12 of series 2 of the Parkinson's Life podcast with Vicky and Angelo. Be sure to subscribe on your podcast platform to hear more from the series. Vicky, maybe we can get back to how your life changed uh, when you developed uh, this impulse control. Because uh, you briefly mentioned that you were spending uh, a lot of money and you had uh, you, you had someone living with you at that time. But what happened then? Was uh, your boyfriend or husband, uh, was he willing to stay with you uh, during this period or you were left alone? Because some of my patients that I know have been left alone, particularly men, we are pretty bad in dealing with this problem. So the first thing we do, we run away. It was me who did the running, I'm afraid, because I recognized, well, I've changed personality completely. I was a pain in the bum. For one thing, I was hyperactive, you know, and you'd come in from work and there would be like staircases and suddenly be bright red or something or something really weird. And... My kids at first thought it was quite funny, but then obviously they were quite young at the time. There was um, 11 and 6 when I was diagnosed, so quite young. And I kind of like was so wrapped up in my own self and spent a lot of time on the internet, a lot of time on Facebook, absorbed, self-absorbed. And our, my partner and I were not married. We've been together 33 years, but never done the marriage thing. I think he was just at the end of his tether. I never used to make any dinner. I never cleaned the house. I was just in my own little pink fluffy bubble of selfishness, if I'm honest. And 
it got nasty between us. It got really nasty. Those, you know, issues of domestic violence from both of us, which is never, you know, it's never excusable. But and for my children's sake, I thought this is awful. They're they're living in a horrendous atmosphere. So I thought, right, I can't afford to keep this house on. I'm going to have to go and get myself a flat. So I did. And it was the time when I'd walked away from my job as well, because after the documentary I'd done, there was a newspaper article written about me. Never spoke to me, but this was the headline. Naughty nurse turns into nymphomaniac or something. Something ridiculous and seedy. And I was hauled into the the NHS trust I worked for and to see the manager and, and really get a slap on the wrist. And they were talking about getting me struck off the nursing register for bringing nursing into disrepute. And I was like, oh, my God. And it just made me feel even worse. So I then threw the disability discrimination book at them and had a bit of a tussle for about 18 months. In the end, my consultant said, Vicky, you can either fight them or the NHS is a big, you know, bigger person than you. They've got big brooms, big carpets. Why don't you just take your medical retirement and leave and get on with your life? And that's what he suggested. And that's what I did. So I told them to stick their job. But there's not a day goes by that I don't regret that and miss it because I was I was good at my job and I loved my job. And that takes away your social standing in life. It takes away your self-worth. And yeah, it was a pretty horrible time. Yeah. So that you think that also your choices in your life, in your job, were affected by this excessive impulsivity. Yeah, totally. I mean, I mean, like I said, I was a respiratory nurse. I covered three hospitals. It was setting up the service. Used to cover about 120 miles a day in my little sports car, smoking in between, driving like a lunatic, nearly killed myself a few times. Nearly lost my license for speeding as well. Just reckless crazy behavior when I think about it. Quite scary when I look back, actually. Vicky, one aspect that we mentioned at the beginning is the stigma and the feeling that if you have Parkinson, your life is not going to be the same. And uh, the reaction to this is you take the drug and you are going up, uh, feeling great, and then you had to face the problem. Let's get a bit deeper in your feelings, uh, how you reacted and how you felt once you had to face the consequences of these behaviors. Yeah, it was it was probably the darkest time of my life, if I'm honest. And the guilt I had towards my children, the guilt I still have towards my children, and I'll probably get emotional now, but I'm angry about lots of things. Well, I'm not. Now I'm not angry, actually. I've kind of really addressed those feelings and I've really come to terms with my diagnosis in in lots of ways. Parkinson's has done me lots of favours, which sounds crazy. But when I look at the horrible person I was, and I was a pain, I was horrible. So selfish. And and you kind of use the, the excuse, well, I've got Parkinson's, so, you know, you can't act like somebody who doesn't care and you know, just go hell for leather and take risks and put people through what some of us put them through, our families and those who love us, because they're they're dealing with our diagnosis as well. And then we become this mega pain in the butt. And it's horrible. It is horrible to deal with that and, you know, face that truth and admit to it. It's not easy. It's much easier to say, 
oh, they put me on drugs and it wasn't my fault. To some extent, it isn't our fault, but we can't blame it all on the drugs. We have to take some ownership and we have to take some, you know, the blame and work through that. And it's a healing process in itself. It's not easy, though. So, Angelo, if I had come to you and told you what was happening to me, what would you what would you have done for me? How would you have helped me? Well, I think, you know, it is uh, a situation which, uh, of course, Vicky, not easy to get out. It, it takes some time. I think you clearly express your sense of guilt uh, and your sadness to your children, to your partner, uh, maybe to the people who are involved in this process. So I said before that we try to get more involvement at the time of diagnosis and at the time when we choose the medications. Involvement means uh, let's discuss the options. Let's explain that sometimes maybe living a bit of a motor, subtle motor disability, it is something you can couple but it is better to live with that at the beginning but rather than increase uh, the dose of the drugs uh, to the point that you lose uh, uh, your mental control. Yeah. So now that we are aware of this, uh, this is uh, something we I would discuss uh, uh, more thoroughly. But if you had come to me uh, saying, uh, I'm desperate, I need help, uh, one of my uh, efforts uh, in the last 10 years uh, has been to set up a support program to provide the counseling uh, from psychologists, family counseling as well. I've been doing some legal advice as well on, uh, you know, for instance, uh, one of the issues uh, I always got me mad has been uh, you ask for a loan uh, to the bank in that condition and they do give you money. I think, you know, if you are uh, a financial institution and you see someone who's clearly altered, I mean, mentally not uh, in a good state, you should try to be more concerned before having people signing on a loan. So one of the issues I would have had done is I would have helped you trying to claim some of this money back, to be frank, because it upsets me a lot that, uh, you know, they made you buy a sport car and... Uh, uh, your salary was the one of a nurse. I mean, you were not a banker. And they knew that would have been extremely difficult for you to pay it back. I was called into the bank to explain what I was spending the money on. And I said to him, I remember the conversation. I said, well, I can lie to you or I can tell you the truth. And I, he said, well, tell me the truth. And I said, underwear, nice car holidays. And they knew I had Parkinson's as well. And he laughed and just said, oh, well. And basically just carry on and then obviously there came the day when the the bank card stopped working and i had to face facts but and there are patients who've had their debts written off but i tried that and didn't what happened for me so i'll be paying them off forever so this is one aspect how do you deal with the social uh, consequences of this and the other hand i think that your choice initially was a good one trying to titrate down uh, the drugs, uh, not stopping them, but trying to lower the dosage. I hope you were able to find at that point uh, some support from your family, from your children and your partner when you gained again some uh, mental control on your uh, activities. Was This is something where 
I'm putting an effort now trying to find support through also patient lay associations locally. Uh, we, uh, uh, you know, this is a difficult topic, but uh, we discuss it anytime that we have a, uh, a meeting uh, with, uh, with the patient association, because I think it is very important to make people aware. And every time there is someone standing up after uh, we had the discussion saying, you know, my wife, my husband, I'm concerned. So talking, talking is very important. Communication is a key. Vicky, I think that this is uh, very important. You and your daughter age together, I say, you know, because it's a travel. It, it takes, uh, you start at 40, uh, maybe your daughter was 40, 20 years later, you are 60 and your daughter is 60. So somehow, you know, you, you need to set up a relationship uh, with your daughter and with the team because you it is a matter of trust. You can you know that they can give you something. They cannot cure Parkinson because no. I unfortunately I will not be able to cure Parkinson, but I can try to help you get a better life with Parkinson. So this is I think uh, the thing I would have done with you and uh, with your family. Try to do our best with the team uh, trying to uh, help you getting back and getting your life back. But you've got lots of empathy and understanding and that is that is what's essential for a good neurologist. And believe you me, not all of them have that. Your patients are very lucky. I think I might have to move to Italy. So, uh, Vicky, I think we have heard all the suffering, uh, the initial pleasure, and then the life was turned down and then you had to re-emerge uh, and fight to climb back to a normal life. So uh, how do you see your life going forward now? I feel optimistic and hopeful. After all that happened, we've got a duty of care with Parkinson's to help those who are coming up and those yet to come to share what's happened to us. And hopefully we'll all learn from these things. I don't think I'll be cured from Parkinson's and that's fine. You know, Parkinson's is just part of me. It's only a small part of me. It used to be massive and all-encompassing and obsessive. Now it's just, yeah, some days are rubbish, some days are good, but that's the same for everyone. I'm, I turned 50 last year and it was the best birthday I'd had probably the whole of my life. And I feel free from a lot of negativity regarding my disease. I feel proud, parky and proud, I say. Angela, I'd just like to say thank you so much for your understanding and your explanations and um, you're amazing. I think, like I said earlier, your patients are very, very lucky and I'm very jealous. <laughs> thank you, Vicky. I think you are a great person and uh, I really admire you because uh, you have been able to get out of this difficult period, uh, set up a new life and uh, find yourself new positive objectives uh, and I'm sure you will do great with your Parkinson in the future. Parkinson's Life magazine is produced by Speak Media on behalf of the European Parkinson's Disease Association, the leading voice for Parkinson's in Europe. For the latest research and information on Parkinson's, visit epda.eu.com. Thanks for listening to the Parkinson's Life podcast. If you like what you've heard, please rate and review. It helps make sure others can find us. If you'd like to share your story with Parkinson's Life magazine, 
Get in touch through Facebook, Twitter, or by emailing editor at parkinsonslife.eu. Keep a lookout for our next episode, and until then, take care.